This morning we jump back into the book of Romans and um, what we're doing as as a church with two congregations, uh, one at Pine and one here, is we've been preaching through the book of Romans over the spring. And uh, last spring we got all the way almost through the first chapter and then we had to go back to it in August because there's just so much that's in the book of Romans that, that we really want to take and hold on to. Like there's, there's a beauty in the book of Romans. It is the anthem of Romans is this glorious gospel. It's the good news that you and I in and of ourselves, uh, like we, we can't save ourselves. And so, so much of Romans actually speaks to the ways that we go about trying to do that. And it calls us not to do that, but to instead take hold of by faith, the good news of Jesus. The good news of his work, his life, his death, his resurrection, his his ascension, the fact that he's currently at heaven praying, interceding for you and I if we are in him right now. That's the good news of the gospel is that it doesn't depend anything on you and I and our works, but it's by faith we take hold of Christ and who he is. And so we looked at that anthem of Romans, the, the glorious gospel. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's If there's anything that we would get out of all of our time in Romans, it's the idea that the gospel, the good news, is that God has saved powerfully by His work Sinners like you and I, he saved us, rescued us, everyone who believes in him. And so we always want to have that like deeply seated in our hearts. Because as we read through this and as we, we kind of break it down and we go through parts of it, we're not getting maybe the way even that the church uh, would hear it first in Rome. They, they would sit and they would gather to hear a letter that from somebody that they didn't know. So that's why Paul introduces himself in the beginning of the book. And they would gather and they would listen to the whole of the letter. And the whole of the letter speaks to the goodness and beauty of the grace of Christ. See, not only are we saved, but in us is put a righteousness that you and I cannot create for ourselves. It goes on in verse 17 of Romans 1. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He could have just ended there. Like the righteous shall live by faith. Here's the good news. God has come and rescued. And all you have to do is by faith accept that rescue. But as some of you know, there's 16 more chapters, 16 chapters in total. So 15 and a half more after verse 17, where he continues to say, listen, you don't understand, but this is way better than you can imagine. So let's dive in. Let's see how this is good news. And then he speaks to the ways that we run to other things besides this gospel that we take hold of by faith. If you remember, we spent some time looking at that, that that the, the culture of Rome had some unique parallels to the culture that we currently live in. And what's crazy is that it's got parallels through every culture of all time because culture is full of humans like you and me. 
It's full of humans that want to do it ourselves. We want to be able to fix ourselves. And yet God has called us to a continuing trust and dependence upon him. And so Paul speaks to the culture in Rome. He speaks to the, the, the culture that surrounds this church of Jews and Gentiles, both gathered together with completely different histories, ethnicities, understandings. And he's calling them, listen, this one thing you have to understand. It's that you have been saved by God. A powerful God, a God who rescues. You could not do it yourself, so God has saved you, everyone who believes. So this righteousness, the righteous shall live by faith, what does that mean? Chapter upon chapter, Paul's going to walk us through that. You see, in the gospel, the, the righteousness of God, we see both the justice of God against sin... And the mercy of God towards sinners. That's really hard for us to hand, like, hold together. It's really hard for us to understand that God justly condemns sin. And God graciously saves sinners like you and me. And so, he's going to explain, like, what does that look like? And what does that mean? And towards the end of chapter 1... We saw that his glorious righteousness reveals our hideous unrighteousness and the ways that we that would be played out mainly by those who are irreligious, mainly by those who uh, would practice um, all kinds of immorality. And so he, he rightly says, listen, all of the things that culture is doing to, to run away from God, I am calling unrighteous. The only way that you and I would have righteousness is if we run to God. You see, until we recognize our depraved state, we cannot see our desperate need for salvation. If you and I think that we can just uh, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, try harder, work harder, even in some really good things, we're going to miss the reality of the grace of God. As we talk about um, in the partnership that we did a couple weeks ago, uh, through, through our community group, we were talking about like the reality of understanding my sinfulness and the reality of seeing God's glorious holiness and how those two things diverge. They're, they're so far apart. What, what in the world could, could reconcile those two things, could connect those two things, and it's only the cross of Jesus Christ. It's only the beauty of the Savior whose, whose charms are unending. We say 10,000, there's probably more than that. They don't end. The grace of Jesus is so far beyond what we can fathom. And that's what Paul is calling us to, even as he points out the sin that we walk in. And so he exposes us with probing questions and bold statements. At the end of Romans 1, um, towards the end, Romans 1, 21 through 25, reads this way. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's easy for us to point to others, but the reality is that my heart is darkened often. I, I, I see the beauty of God and then moments later I'll run after something else because my heart is darkened. I don't, I don't stay in that moment. I don't live in that moment. He goes on, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We've, we talk about idolatry of the heart 
so often. And it's because the, the heart is, is made to pursue God and him alone. And yet it pursues so many other things. 24 and 25, therefore God gave them up to in, their, in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I love that. Even as he's saying, like, what are, what are the things that are being done wrong? He just has to go to praise and in the midst of it. Because as soon as he mentions the creator, he has to say, man, who is blessed forever. We can get caught up in this being about us, but the reality is that all of this, all of the gospel points to God. Here's where it takes a turn, where we're going to be today, chapter 2. You see, as the letter's being read, I'm sure that there's people in the, in the congregation that are actually looking at other people and thinking, I, I've seen where you've done that. You see, you have Jews and Gentiles, so you have people that have, have grown up hearing the law of God, hearing the praises of God, and then you have other people that are coming in for the very first time, and maybe they don't even know their sin, and so they're actually being exposed graciously. Paul is calling them out of their sin. As the letter is being read to the church made up of both Jews and Gentiles in Rome, it's likely that it may have been some amens being cast about. Some whatever it is that you say when you're like, I agree with that. Because so quickly we we judge those things and we're like, yes, that's bad. And it's true. It is bad. God has said it's bad. So that, that means it's true. But do we look at others or do we come as people together and say, yes, yeah, we are unrighteous. Even as I see the unrighteousness in you, I also confess the unrighteousness in me. And so together we come to the grace of Jesus. That's what we're going to look at this morning. The idea of, of how even if we're not necessarily um, outwardly practicing the sin, there's a sin that's inside of us that we would judge. And as we judge others, we're actually condemning ourselves and saying, there's a right way to live and you're not doing it. But as soon as we say that, we also recognize that I'm not doing it either. And so we need rescue. As it's warm in here, it's uncomfortable. As we're talking about judgment and words like wrath, it's uncomfortable. So you know what we need? We need the comfort of the Spirit. Can you ask Him with me right now that He would actually open our ears and our eyes to see the beauty of Christ? We, we desperately need him today as we talk about weighty and heavy things. We don't, we don't want to heap condemnation because God has, he's condemning sin, but he's rescuing sinners and we want to experience that rescue today. So will you pray with me that God would give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you for the gift that it is. We thank you for the rescue that it speaks of. We thank you for the righteousness that's taken hold of by faith. Your righteousness. Lord, we, we read truth today. That you alone are righteous. You alone can judge. And in that judgment that all those who are unrighteous deserve wrath. And yet you've rescued, Lord. You've given away this, this beautiful gospel. May we take hold of it. May we believe it today. Not that we would go out and strive harder, 
but that we would rest in you and your finished work. Lord, we pray that as that gospel proclamation is made at the Point Church in Cocoa Beach, Lord, that, would, that Pastor Derek would proclaim the good news of Jesus. Lord, and as he lifts you high, that others would be drawn unto you. Lord, I pray for Facundo Luzardo, Lord, and um, for Adelam Iglesia Batista in Uruguay. Lord, I pray that as he lifts high the name of Jesus, Lord, and as a congregation worships you, that, that people would see and behold the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for your church throughout all the world that today there would be truth that would be proclaimed, that you would be glorified, that you would save, Lord. God, would you call us again today to repentance? May we walk in it. Lord, may we see our need for it and run to you. We ask this in your name. Amen. As you read verse 1, there's a therefore. Anytime there's a therefore, he's pointing back to something. And so he's talking about what, where he's finished. The finishing of chapter 1 says, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You see, the the payment for sin is death. And Paul is going to build build this case. From the Old Testament, he, he looks back and he says, Listen, the, the only way that you could come rightly before God is if there was a death on your behalf which is why the sacrificial system was so important and so beautiful that, that these innocent animals would be sacrificed for uninnocent people like you and me that would point to the one who would come, the lamb who would come and be slain for us. All of it was pointing to Jesus. And so we have to acknowledge that because of our unrighteousness, we deserve to die. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. These first two verses could just be summed up in in judged and be judged. And he's, he's not saying don't judge sin. That's not what he's saying. He's saying as soon as we judge sin, we recognize that we sit under the judgment of a holy and righteous God. I love the the phrase, oh man, here. Therefore, you have no excuse, oh man. You see, he's contrasting the judgment of man, who is finite, who doesn't have the wisdom that God has, who doesn't have the understanding that God has, with the one who is all-knowing, all-powerful God himself who alone can judge. Contrasting the judgment of man and the judgment of God. I'll break it down for you uh, in this way. I judge wrongly very often. Is there anybody else in here who judges wrongly pretty often? Like, you think that you have all of the information, and yet you make a judgment and you find out you're wrong. Here's the way that it happens most of the time for me, is I will hear something going on upstairs with my children. And I think that I'm hearing correctly. There's a lot of yelling, there's a lot of screaming, there might be stomping, all kinds of things going on. And I make a judgment in that moment. 
And I think I know what happened, only to find out that the one I thought was the victim was actually the perpetrator and vice versa. So I, I call one down and I'm ready to just let him have it for not being kind, which in itself has some issues. I'm going to let him have it for not. So I'm, I'm wrestling with this. And I think that I know how to rightly judge this thing. I think that I've heard what I need to hear to make a good judgment. And what I find is that they come down and I start getting into one of them and then the other one comes down and, and maybe they're usually, a, 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 with five, I've usually got two and then three that are telling me what's going on. So the three will come down and say, Dad, that's not, that's not what happened. It's actually the other way around. And, I'm, and then I have to confess and I have to repent and I have to say, I'm sorry, so-and-so. I'm not going to say names like earlier. I have to say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I judged wrongly. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's pointing to the fact that like, you owe man. You think that you know like all of it. And yet you have what the spirit has revealed to you. And you have, you have the law and you have so many things that are really good. And yet you don't get to stand in judgment. Only one stands in judgment. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God, He judges. And He has judged sin and said that sin deserves death. Not only has He judged outward sin, the, the sin that, that is blatantly immoral, but He's judging moral hearts that are actually chasing after their own self-righteousness here. Those who would judge, you see, um, as soon as I judge my children, like we talked about, I also have to remember that, man, I, I mess up all the time. I just messed up in that judgment right there. Like I, I fell short. And so I sit under the judgment of God. I too am wrong. And so what I need to do is not point to the fact that they were wrong, but I need to say, listen, together we are wrong. Can we, can we confess that to be true? Can we confess that, um, we, we are sinful people that we're striving to get what we want. I'm striving to get what I want even in that moment because they've unsettled my quiet. <laughs> they've disturbed my peace. And so I'm actually striving in those moments often to make that happen rather than saying, hey, you, we, we need to repent. We need to go to a holy God. We need to remember that he's holy and we're not. We need to remember that Jesus has actually worked so that you and I in this moment can be restored and that you and your sister in this moment can be restored. But so often life just seems overwhelming. We just want to fix things. We want to make things right instead of sitting in, in the reality that none of us are right. And we all deserve judgment. I thank God for his righteous judgment. It says in verse 2 that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Right judgment. We'll hear judgment and we'll think that's bad. You should not judge. Don't judge lest ye be judged. But the reality is that there, there is one who rightly judges, the holy one, the righteous one. Why does he judge? He judged because evil is wrong. 
Like you and I have experienced that. We've all experienced some sort of evil that has broken things in our lives. And God says that evil is wrong, but I am righteous and I am true and I'm kind and I'm good. And you need to know that. And I judge evil. He rightly judges evil. It is so true that when I judge others, I'm also judging myself. Unfortunately, there's also a lie that's, that's mixed in there as I'm judging people. It says that I'm okay. I pass judgment because I'm not doing that thing that I'm judging you for. I, I pass judgment. If I were to judge myself, I'm doing okay because I'm doing, living, speaking, thinking right. I can judge you because I'm right. And in that moment, I'm forgetting Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. This is for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Often we're making a comparison so that we can boast. We're judging others so that we can feel better about ourselves, so that we can feel right. And what we need to believe is not that that I'm right and you're wrong, but we have a righteous one. We have a holy one in Christ that we get to run to and rest in. It is by grace that we have been saved. Through faith. Not what we've done, but what God has doing, the gift that he has given us. So in light of that, in light of that truth that God is holy and righteous and he judges, Paul asks two questions. The first question is, can you escape? In verse 3. And the second question is, do you have a wrongful presumption? So let's look at verse 3. Can you escape? It says, do you suppose, O man, again, O man, O finite, O one that can't run, that doesn't know all things, can you suppose, O man, You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. I just want to sit for a second. Because I think that while we don't necessarily... um, We wouldn't articulate it that way. We wouldn't say that I'm trying to escape. There's so many things that we do to try to escape. Either we'll, we'll take our unrighteousness and try to, to balance the scales with our own works of righteousness, which is how many of us think that we would escape judgment. Well, if I, if I would just be good enough, maybe that'll balance out the bad that I do. Maybe that'll balance out the sin if I work really hard trying to escape the judgment of God. I do that all the time. Don't think that I'm alone. I think we do that all the time. It may not be that blatant. It may not be like I'm trying to earn God's works, but I I go to church and I'll read my Bible and I'll pray and all of these things and I'm trying to, to measure up, hoping that if I do enough good things, it'll balance out the bad things. Or maybe we just straight up run. Maybe, maybe escape isn't, isn't me trying to even come before God with what I've done. It's me just running from God. It's me running to any distraction that I can lose myself in for a little while because I know the weight of my sin. 
Maybe I'll um, run to a hobby. Maybe I'll pour my life into work. Maybe I'll try to control my kids thinking, yeah, all right, I'll just fix, fix the things that I can fix. And then quickly, we're just like, gosh, that's not going to happen. I can't fix that. I can't fix my marriage. I can't fix these relationships. But we'll run to other things to try to escape the judgment of God. Psalm 139 talks about trying to escape. Psalm 139, 7 through 12 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is not as is, is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. You see, the psalmist understands there's no escaping God. He's, we have a term for it. It's called omnipresent. It means that He is present everywhere. You cannot escape God. He knows. He knows where you are. He knows who you're with. He knows what you're doing. He even knows your heart, that you're running from Him. And yet, we try over and over to escape the judgment of God. That's what Paul's talking about. Do you suppose, oh man, that you will escape the judgment of God? So that's one of the ways that we respond to God's righteous judgment. Another way that we respond to God's righteous judgment is we presume upon his kindness. We have a wrongful presumption. Verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This one is um, is harder. This one probably really applies to a lot of us in here. The the presumption that we know God. The presumption that um, it's okay because He's forgiven me. The presumption that I know He's got all of these calls to holiness, but I really can't do it. So I'm not even going to try and I'm just going to, I'm just going to be forgiven. Do we presume upon his character, the riches of his kindness, kindness and forbearance and patience? You see, there's a difference between forgiveness and repentance. Forgiveness would just say that it's okay. And, and God does. He forgives our sins. He, he, he forgives and He bears the weight of it for us. He suffers the punishment that our sin deserves. At the cross, He bore our sin and our shame. If we are in Christ, He took it upon Himself so that it would be cast as far as the east is from the west. His preaching is for forgiveness of sins, but how do you and I take hold of that forgiveness? Do we just assume that it's there? Do we just become casual with it? Maybe you've grown up in the church and um, you've never repented. I think that's possible. I think that, that we could grow up hearing about the goodness and kindness of God. 
And we can think, man, he's going he's gonna to forgive me no matter what I do. We hear a, a verse like, nothing can separate me, which is coming from in, in chapter 8. No, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we think, perfect. That's right where I want to be then. And it's true. Nothing can separate those who are in Christ Jesus from his love. How do we know that we are in Christ Jesus? The second half of verse 4, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Repentance is different from forgiveness. Repentance doesn't presume, but it actually says, I have received grace upon grace upon grace, and now I don't want to do these things anymore. I've been, I've been forgiven, and now I turn from them. Who do I turn to? I run to Christ. Not I run to morality, not I run to religion, not I run to something better or trying harder. I run to Christ who has purchased me by his blood. I run to Christ who has saved me by his power, the power of God, the gospel, his perfect obedience. The obedience that now he calls me to in repentance, like to turn from my disobedience and turn to obedience in Christ. See, as Christians, we often emphasize the grace and mercy of God over the holiness and righteousness of God. I do it. I've, I've probably preached this, like overemphasizing certain aspects of God instead of taking the whole of who he is, because I don't know, because I'm finite and I'm, I'm learning some of these things as I go. But man, there's so much more to God that I do not understand. And so we want to preach the, the whole counsel of God that he rightly judges, that he calls us to not only grace and mercy and forgiveness, but to repentance. And so we turn to him. We run to him. Why? Why do we do this? Why? Why do we overemphasize these things? Because it's easier for us to hear. Because we think that um, now we can now we can just continue on with the lives we want to live. Because repentance actually says you don't get the life that you wanted to live. You live the life that God has called you to. You actually begin to, to not walk in the ways that would please you and satisfy you, but you get to walk in the, the good works that he prepared before time began for you to walk in. Works of, of selflessness, works of, of beauty, works of, even sometimes of suffering that, that you get to walk in for his glory. Because now my life is no longer about me. My life is no longer about my satisfaction. It is about the glory of God. That's how we know if we've been saved. If we can say, man, it's not about me anymore. It's about the good and beautiful one, the Savior. John Stott, talking about Romans 2, 4, says this, For God's kindness leads us toward repentance. That is its goal. It is intended to give us space in which to repent, not to give us an excuse for sinning. See, that's, that's what I often look to. Can you just excuse the sin? Can you maybe even just give me space to do it? But the reality is that God is calling us to repent, not to have an excuse for the sin, but to turn away from it, to turn to Christ. 
Verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I doubt many of us take that one, write it on a card, put it in our pocket to memorize. It's a tough one. (laughs) Oh, man. I read that and I'm like, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. How do we read that and hear good news? How do, how do you read that and think, man, that gives me joy? It's tough. It's tough, but here's, here's the thing. If we just take that, it leaves us with no excuse when we stand before a holy God. No excuse in and of our ability to make us right. Which is what Paul is driving at. That both the irreligious lost, those who would go and who would squander their lives chasing after lesser things, and the religious lost, those who think that somehow they're, they're earning a righteousness by their works and even by their judging of others, that, that both of those people are still lost. Paul's, Paul's driving that point home. Listen, I don't care how you live. That will not earn you the justification that you need before a holy God who judges rightly. It won't. You need a righteousness outside of yourself. You need a righteousness that's not yours. You need a righteousness that's put in you, which is what he says in Romans 1, 17, when he says, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, and it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, we repent and we say, God, I've I've tried in my own strength. I've chased, I've either run from you so often, or maybe today you've run to church and you said, man, I I know what I need to do to get right with God. I just need to go, I need to sing loud with Zach and just belt it. And that's gonna, man, God's gonna be pleased with me in that moment. I'll tell you, there's beauty to that. If you're in Christ, he is pleased with you in that moment. It's sweet. It's beautiful. Some of us are pleased, depending on who's singing. We're we're pleased in that moment too. But there is nothing that we can do outside of Christ that would please God. But here's what we have in Jesus. You and I, we repent. Do we repent from immorality and run to morality? Do we repent from uh, not chasing religion to chasing religion? No, we repent from all of those things and we run to Jesus. The one who has both begun and perfected and finished our faith. We run to Jesus and we say, God, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. I run to Jesus. And I've tried so hard to do all of the right things. I've even leveraged so much of my life to service and ministry. And I've left Jesus. I haven't run to Jesus. Today, don't run to any of the things of God. We talk about this in community group, and I'm so thankful. Like, don't run to those things. Run to Jesus, the one who has saved. This is the only escape that we have. This repentance 
Verse 5 is calling us to run to Jesus. It says, because of your heart and an impenitent heart. Now, impenitent heart is a hard one, and I'm thankful for like the CSB and the NIV and the NSAB that all uh, translate this as unrepentant heart. You see, the, the reason that you and I are storing up wrath is because we are not walking in repentance. We're walking in with an unrepentant heart, a hard heart. Unrepentant is characterized by a refusal to abandon any pagan or self-righteous disposition for a new disposition characterized by trust in Jesus for salvation and an accompanying holy life. Your holy life is not what's going to make you right with God. It is the, the byproduct of Jesus' work on your behalf that's going to be displayed in the life of the believer who trusts and depends upon Jesus. It's going to happen. He's faithful and just to do that. But what we do is we run to Jesus and we say, Lord, have mercy. God, I've tried. I've, I've run towards paganism and self-satisfaction and I've run towards religion and all of the other things that I thought would, would make you happy. And I'm done with any of that. I just need you. I need a work that I can't do. I need a work that you have done. You see, this has always been the message of Jesus. Mark 1.15, the very beginning of Mark. Jesus' first words that Mark records say this, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He's talking to people that don't even know what the gospel is yet, but he's saying, listen, this is the way that you're going to come to right relationship with God. This is the way that you're going to enter into this kingdom is by repenting, by turning from your striving, from your doing, and resting in the king of this kingdom. Believe in the gospel. You see, if unrepentance stores up wrath, then repentance produces mercy. And Jesus, you and I have mercy, grace, love, righteousness, beauty, kindness, all of who God is, you and I have it in Jesus. So we run to Jesus. This was the, the whole of the message of Scripture, that there would be a Messiah, a chosen one, an anointed one who would come and would do a work that you and I could not do. That we would rest in His work. That we would have Sabbath, that we would have shalom, that we would have a peace that we could not produce because of the one who has come and produced it for us. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And we know we are in Jesus when we walk by faith and we see this accompanying holy life in our lives. And we're going to press into that next week. Like, What does it look like to have the holiness of God produced in us? But then we stand on His works in our lives. We see that. That's another sermon for next week. This morning, I pray that we will have seen the beauty of Jesus. Why can Jesus judge? All of the creeds point to, to Jesus, his, his work being completed and finished, the gospel work, but there's, there's still a work to come. He's going to return and he's going to judge the quick and the dead. Jesus is going to judge. How can he judge? He can judge because he knows what perfect righteousness looks like. He walked it out. He walked faith-filled obedience to the Father. 
perfectly. He can judge because he knows what sin is. He put the weight of the sin of all those who would trust in him on himself, and he bore that weight, and he died on the cross to redeem a people for himself. You see, Jesus is the righteous judge who knows all of these things, and so he can come, and he will come, and he will judge all of us. And for those who have rejected him, just blatant rejection, there will be a judgment of wrath. For those who have tried in and of themselves to to do it better, to try harder, there's going to be a judgment that they did not measure up as good as they were. They did not measure up to the holiness of God. So who can escape the wrath of God? Who can escape the judgment of God? Only those who put their hope and their faith in Jesus, in his righteousness, in his atoning work for them. Not just one time, but I think that this is what God is building in us. A total dependence and trust in him. Not a moment of an altar call, but a daily life that says, God, I I can't do anything if you don't do it. I need you. I'm desperate for you. Will you do this in me? Will you produce all of the things that you've promised? Because without you, I, I have no hope. But with you, I have a great hope. In you, I have all the promises of God. And so we rest in Jesus. The call today is not to move from being the irreligious loss to being the religious loss. Not from being immoral to being moral but to move to Jesus in repentance and faith to no longer be lost, but to be found by the savior. You pray with me. Lord, it's impossible that we would be able to convince ourselves of this truth. that we would be able to throw ourselves completely upon the mercy and grace of Christ. That we would decide and uh, faithfully cling to you, Lord, we, we just can't do it. We're, we're finite, we're fickle, we're broken, we're sinners. And yet you have come and you have gathered us and you cling to us in your son, Jesus. So, Lord, today, would you remind us again of the salvation that we have in Christ, that as we repent of of chasing after other things and as we run to Christ, as we repent and believe the gospel, Lord, that we rest in you. Lord, and that one day before a holy and righteous judge, you will say, that one's mine. I bought him, bought her. I've paid for her with my precious blood. They clung to me. Their hope for righteousness was in me. Their faith was in me. So Lord, would you do that in us? Would you hold us tight? Would you save today? Lord, there's some of us that have, that have gone about doing all of the right things. Striving to make the balance equal between our sin and our righteousness, Lord. And what we need is, is we need one who would come and wash away our sin and make us righteous. Put his righteousness in us. And so, Lord, today we ask that you would do that. God, and then would you stir in us such joy? 
such gratitude for the grace of the gospel that we would go and tell others about this good news, Lord, that it would, that it would just radiate from our lives. That it would be the thing that's on the tip of our tongues. That we'd be quick to repent, knowing that we can't do it in and of ourselves. And that we would call others to repentance, not, not because uh, we're judging them, but because all of us sit under the weight of judgment and we need a Savior. And thankfully, we have you. Help us to believe and trust in that today. But even as we move into communion, may it be... May it be what stirs joy in us. The fact that Christ has come, paid the ransom for our sins, resurrected to new life that we walk in today by the power of the Spirit. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.